Hello, and welcome back to the Mastery Tip Mat. Pardon the gap between this and the last episode. Between university and some technical difficulties on our side, we had to scrap a couple of planned episodes. However, now we're back with this first episode of a new series called Don't Forget About Us, made by Gloria and Sherelle. They do a good job of describing it in the first few minutes, so I'm going to let them take it away. So without further ado, hello. You're listening to The Mastery Diplomat. Hello, lovely people. This is Gloria and Sherelle, and we want to give you a very warm welcome to our first episode of this wonderful podcast series entitled Don't Forget About Us. The podcast itself came to be an evening in our living room, just being upset and very challenged about the misrepresentation or lack of uh, representation that certain realities and people get in the media. And so we thought that since we do have this very humble channel to hopefully give voice to certain organisation dealing with situations that deserve our attention, so to say, to people enduring repression and stress and shocks constantly. We thought that it would be good for us to portray it and share it with you and shed a light on what, what is going on and why is it important to talk about it. So this podcast is going to be articulated through different episodes. Each episode is going to be discussing a certain reality or people who have been either misrepresented or not represented at all, like Gloria said. And we really want to pinpoint or to emphasize the fact that we're not discussing anything political. Our aim is purely social. So we kindly ask you, our lovely listeners, to focus on the people we're talking about and try to walk a few steps in their shoes and hopefully to change the narrative around or maybe even create a narrative uh, around the situation that has been not represented or misrepresented. In this first episode, we're tackling the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela. Specifically, we're talking about the medical crisis. And since our lovely co-host Gloria <laughs> is studying globalization and development at Maastricht University, specializing in Latin America and being half Venezuelan, yeah. <laughs> she is the perfect candidate to guide us through what is happening now Ooh. in Venezuela. Oh, I don't know about that, but I thank you so much for the trust. Um, so, yeah, so today, as, as Sherelle said, we're going to be talking about the medical crisis in Venezuela. And th- this is an issue that has had some coverage in the past. And Venezuela itself, as a humanitarian crisis, has had some coverage in the past. Although I would say that this coverage was not persistent or consistent and only came up when there were major shocks and a major event. Whereas the situation keeps on going and it's it's still quite tough and challenging for the many people that are still in the country. Yeah, exactly. I do remember when the economic crisis started in Venezuela, there was this video that gone viral. I don't know if any of our listeners saw it. There was this uh, 40-year-old man, I believe, and he was comparing his salary to to the prices of a sandwich <laughs> sold in a yeah. kiosk. Yeah, that's, that's unfortunately what has been happening for a while now and it's constantly worsening. So Venezuela has experienced indeed a socioeconomic collapse during the last 10 years that has been labelled as the worst outside a war zone in the past 45 years. Similar level of economic devastation 
have been compared to countries that were ripped apart by war, such as Libya or Lebanon in the 70s. This because uh, there was a downfall of the oil economy connected to various political aspects that led to soaring prices and a humongous descent into hypoinflation, in which up to date rose to up, up to more, almost 2 million percent. So what does that mean, 2 million percent? Two million percent basically means that the actual currency has lost most of its acquisitive power and most of its importance. So we can see most people in Venezuela do transaction via cards because simply because going around and even going to the shop and buy a carton of milk would require so much liquidity and so much so many notes that it wouldn't be doable, it wouldn't be feasible. You would um, come in with a truck of cash yeah, to buy absolutely. something from a store. Totally. Also, this went hand in hand with a impossibility from local population to access primary goods. The minimum wage, for example, has been recently raised to 2.40 US dollars, while wow. before this was uh, 64 cents. And this goes hand in hand with, with the prices that keep going up and a carton of milk, for example, costs around almost uh, $1.70. So you can only imagine how so ordinary you get paid, people in a family yes, would Yes, so you get paid the minimum wage, which is $2.40, and then the litre of milk is like $1. And what, yeah, you haven't exactly. eaten, you haven't bought, bought anything yet. You haven't done anything yet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is evident. 96% of the population in the country lives below the poverty line, with more than 70% living in extreme poverty, in condition of extreme poverty and deprivation. The crisis prompted severe shortages of basic goods. It goes from food to medicine to fuel to electricity and so on. It's a, it's a very challenging situation, a very particular one. Yeah, so, of course... Um, seeing the scenery people are desperate and it's not easy to and i've seen that violence is also an issue in venezuela a really important issue lately yeah venezuelan has up to date one of the highest number of violent deaths not only in the region so in latin america but also in the world it's one of the most dangerous countries out there and of course, as you can imagine, the current situation prompted an exodus and a mass migration from the country. Up to date, more than 5 million Venezuelans have left their home in, in what is considered as the largest migration in Latin America recent history. I read an article lately that it is predicted to surpass even Syria in numbers. Yeah, and also it needs to be pointed out that this migration didn't happen all at once. So, of course, there were different waves of migration. The first one starting before even the crisis got this bad, this bad mm. yes, back in 2013. So the first wave of migration saw corporates and highly skilled individuals and professionals abandoning the country because, first of all, they could. And secondly, they did see it coming in a way. And then there was a second wave, of course, of constituted mostly by the middle class who left the country when the situation started getting bad. So we talk about 2013 and 2014. And then the last wave of migration that goes up to... Uh, now and it's still happening and it consists of all those people that didn't have the mean to leave with the first wave, didn't have the mean to leave with the second wave and now it's just leaving because there's really nothing else left mm. and we talk mm. about people who leave and, and, and walk 
their way through South America. We, I think it's also important when we talk about Venezuelan migration to acknowledge that it, it happens locally. It doesn't, the people that get to the West or to the US or to Europe are very few in comparison. Most of Venezuelan migrants are actually hosted by neighboring countries in South America, which unfortunately do not have such strong structures to receive them or to give the necessary help. And we talk about a migration that goes, that tackles every aspect of society. There is an astounding number of even indigenous people, and this is really hurtful and deeply, deeply upsetting to know that indigenous people are leaving their ancestral land to because they just can't endure it anymore. They can't endure the malnutrition, they can't endure the violence. And it, it's just become overwhelming in a way. It's That's really bad. very unfortunate. But this is also why we're talking about this topic specifically in Don't Forget About Us, because we really see the importance of media coverage. And what about the civil society? Are there any protests? Because, well, there is no coverage of that, so we don't really know what's happening. Protests started a while ago when the crisis got really bad in 2013. There was a massive, massive uh, wave of protests started by the student movement because student movement still holds a immense power in Latin America and great importance. And there have been protests for the past seven years, seven to eight years, and nothing is happening. And protests have been repressed. There has been a violent repression of protesters by the government. Human Rights Watch made a really compelling case and, and wrote a lot about it, about the fact that shots were fired on the crowd, on peaceful protest about the fact that students were kidnapped and tortured by electroshock in the country because they were opposing the government publicly through the protest. When you say that the first wave of immigration was by highly skilled people, Mm -hmm. so are we talking about then doctors, nurses, lawyers, anyone who would actually hold the country together? And specifically, since we're talking in this episode about the medical crisis, what kind of impact did this mass migration have? For the medical crisis, this had a huge impact. For sure, there was a huge number of medical personnel that left the country. And and that is a big part of the medical crisis, the fact that there are no doctors, there are no nurses, there's no medical personnel to take on and actually attend to the population. The worst thing about it all is that despite these numbers and despite the astounding realities that citizens have to leave, the government refused and for a really long time to acknowledge the situation, the state of emergency that the country has to endure. And for a really long time, they also didn't allow humanitarian aid to get in the country. And and in so doing, they prevented a huge number of people from receiving food, from receiving the medical help that they needed. So if I understand you now correctly about Mm. the situation in Venezuela, if you're a Venezuelan right now and during all of this, there is a high chance that you don't have access to food you don't have access to medicine what if you're Mm. what if you're a person who needs a a constant medication like if you have Mm. asthma you need an inhaler or yeah no prices are soaring up and more more important than that is the fact that not only prices are soaring but there there are actual shortages of of medicine and we're not only talking about asthmatic people we talk about people with hiv with diabetes with pre-existing condition or underlying condition that cannot access the treatment they need that's a huge part of the crisis, the fact that medical supplies are, are part of the shortages. So people with chronic illnesses will not be able to 
received proper treatment. It goes for any kind of illnesses. It can be asthma as well as it can be HIV or diabetes. People are unable to receive treatment, not only because the prices of medication are so high, but also because it's impossible to find them. Hospitals actually do not have access to them. Any mean or tool to actually assist patients, women who have to give birth most likely will have to provide the hospital they want to attend with anything that goes from scalpels, anesthesia, the robes they wear as well. Any sort of material that you can imagine goes into an operation room to deliver a baby, they would have to provide simply because the hospital does not have it. That's horrible. And I think our guest is going to elaborate more on that. We have a lovely guest today, Cinzia De Santis. She is the founder and CEO of a London-based charity called Healing Venezuela. And the charity has many programs and, and projects that are still ongoing despite the challenges that they had to endure due to COVID. They do try their best to tackle the medical crisis or at least to alleviate it in some ways and, and try to make it better really for the people that are on the ground. And of course, another important thing, and I think it's a, it's a salient point of the charity itself, it's that it is a diasporic organisation. So Chinsa will talk about it as well. The organisation is composed by the diaspora and it, it was instituted by people that left the country and have active engagement to their roots, to their people, to the country, and try to help as much as they can from an outside. And I think that's important. That's really important because it provides local knowledge. So yeah. the people who are actually working in Healing Venezuela know exactly what the country is facing and how they should tackle to help. And yeah. it is also very important to say that Healing Venezuela is apolitical. Yeah. Their concern is, like ours, only focused on the people and how can we help the people. So now we're going to bring in our lovely guest. Today we're here with Cinzia de Santis, the CEO and co-founders of Healing Venezuela. Hello, Cinzia. How are you? Oh, very well. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you too. How and thank you? you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. So, Cinzia, what is the situation like in Venezuela from your own point of view since you, you've been working on the ground? In our experience, the situation in Venezuela from a health point of view, which is basically the area that our charity Healing Venezuela is involved with, is quite dramatic in the sense that all the indicators, health indicators, uh, really show a very, very difficult, uh, tragic, actually, situation. It's basically, it's a consequence of the crisis in Venezuela. If you imagine that, for example, the there has been an 80% of GDP contraction since 2013, 96% of household income is now below the poverty line and 80% is below the extreme poverty line. And uh, it, just in 2020, uh, acute malnutrition in children increased by 30%. So in, this is basically, it's, I mean, it's very difficult to sustain an economy in these conditions and it's also extremely difficult to sustain a health system in these circumstances. So we have seen a um, severe decline uh, of the overall health system in Venezuela since we started in 2014 collecting medical supplies and the crisis is even more acute during the pandemic. So unfortunately it's a very bleak picture and a lot of people are suffering and are leaving the country because also because of the health crisis in Venezuela. That's very unfortunate to hear. It's definitely disheartening. So when we so when we talk about the medical crisis can you maybe give us an uh, overview about the hospital situation in Venezuela. How are the hospitals getting affected 
and what kind of implications does that have over the situation of the people there? The, the hospital, the state hospitals in particular, are very affected by this crisis to the point that um, there is an estimation that 80% of hospitals are not working uh, in Venezuela. Uh, there was a, a network of hospitals. Remember Venezuela? Oh, I don't know if you know it, but Venezuela used to be at the forefront of medical care in Latin America in the 70s and 80s. And so it had a vast network of hospitals, of rural health centers uh, that would serve the population. Now, that network is uh, the infrastructure is severely deteriorating. For example, just to give you an example, uh, we repaired an ultrasound machine for heart conditions in Caracas. And this is the only ultrasound machine that works in the entire area of Caracas. I mean, a city that has 4 million inhabitants. And the only state, I mean, the only free service is this one that we have repaired in the university hospital. Just, just to give you an example. In terms of medical supplies, the shortages are around 70, 60% of shortages uh, established by the pharmaceutical body in Venezuela, which is quite acute. Access to expensive treatments like cancer treatment is basically forbidden for low-income people. And a lot of people are dying for conditions that could have been easily cured. The malaria that had been eradicated in Venezuela is now, Venezuela has the highest level of malaria of all of Latin America. Uh, and conditions like uh, other diseases like dengue, Zika, COVID are literally out of control. So finally, now the government is allowing the intervention of large international NGOs so recently, in the last couple of years, we have seen a number of NGOs like UNICEF, like the World Health Organization, the Pan-American Organization. They are in the country, but it's a, an entire population, 6 million people who are in need of medical care. And there is no NGO, no agencies that can cover those needs. So this is where small NGOs like ours, lots of us, try to support, but it's very hard. Clearly. And the situation is furtherly aggravated by the migration of health professional, correct? That's correct, yes. I mean, there is a statistics that has been done by the, the health, not the health authority, because since 2017, the health authorities in Venezuela haven't published bulletins, but let's say the alternative health authorities is our group of universities that do research on the health um, sector. They have established that 50% of doctors have left the country. And uh, for us, we can believe in that statistic because we have a scholarship program for junior doctors. Usually we have 100 and 120 students every year keen to get a scholarship. This year, we failed to recruit. We cannot find in the same hospitals where we had this 120 scholarship, we couldn't find enough students or enough junior doctors. For us, that's an indicator that doctors graduate, but they don't continue their specialization because the salary of a doctor is around $6 per month, $6, $8 per month. So who can survive with that salary? You need 144 times that salary to access the basic need uh, basket of vital commodities. So doctors choose either to leave the country or to do something else. That is disheartening to think that the people that are most qualified to help are leaving because the conditions of life are so dire. But the the situation is very serious for a number of vulnerable groups, which, in your opinion, are the ones that are having it the worst, so to say? Women, 
women and children, and elderly people. The last official statistics that we got from the government in Venezuela in 2017 established an increase in maternal mortality of 65%. Of that 65%, 75% are teenagers. So what we're seeing is an increase in domestic violence, in sexual violence, in trafficking, human trafficking. And because of the lack, the shortages of all sort of pregnancy prevention supplies or system or programs in Venezuela, this is why you have lots of teenagers getting pregnant. Many of them are very seriously malnourished. So this is an explanation of the high mortality rate. The other thing is HIV patients have been particularly ne neglected in Venezuela. They cannot find the drugs that they need to control the HIV. We sponsored a research program in one of the most advanced institutes in Venezuela for research. And they established that there is a very high, a dangerously high percentage of HIV patients who are drug resistant. And that resistance to drug is basically because the virus has mutated and mutating it, it became resistant to the drugs. And that virus is not only in Venezuela, that virus is spreading in Latin America. So this is a problem not only for the vulnerable people in Venezuela who have HIV, but also for other communities in the continent. It's a disastrous situation, as you mentioned. And you mentioned an increase in maternal mortality for adolescent pregnancies. And actually, adolescent pregnancies are also at a never high right now in Venezuela, right? The country has the most adolescent pregnancy in the region. Yeah, that's correct. Um, again, we don't have a statistic, but we do know that is the highest adolescent pregnancy rate in Latin America. It's a very hard situation to talk about. When you say the lack of supplies in hospitals, hospitals are no longer equipped to welcome patients and there's a really high percentage in maternal and infant mortality. And how did this get affected by the COVID situation? Well, it made it worse, as you can imagine. If we talk only about the pregnancy prevention program, and I can give you an example. We have been sponsoring since 2017 a pregnancy prevention program in an, an area of Venezuela, in the west side of Venezuela, with a very well-established NGO, 46 years operating, has been sponsored by the UN, the EU, and last year we shipped them 369 TCOs for women and teenagers for a pregnancy prevention program that includes the possibility of inserting these TCOs. Usually when we shipped this amount of COs, they were inserted in a period of two months. This year, since we send it, they have only been able to insert 51, and that's because one of their drivers died. Members of the board also died. The doctors in Venezuela are particularly impacted by COVID because they're very exposed and there is not enough PPE, there is not, not enough sanitary conditions to combat the virus. So basically what we could see is that in almost a year since we have shipped this, they haven't been able to deliver the support to these women who actually need it very, very badly because this program is focused on low-income women. So in that sense, we can clearly see the impact of COVID-19 in our program. We had to shift the focus of our medical supplies to PPE. PPE is very scarce and very expensive in Venezuela. Many conditions and many routine uh, examinations, diagnoses or treatments have been postponed or have been cancelled because of COVID. 
So it's like in the rest of the world, but a hundred times worse. Absolutely. So COVID came in and aggravated an already precarious situation. How is the local government responding to it? Is there anything they can do? Is there anything they're doing to ameliorate it a bit? One thing that the government has done has been to have a tight control on uh, lockdown. So they have a system of lockdown that alternates um, very strict lockdown and then a flexible week and so on. We know that there are some Sputnik vaccines, something like 800,000 Sputnik vaccines have been shipped to Venezuela, but only around 30,000 health employees have been vaccinated. They are talking about using a vaccine that is produced in Cuba, the Abdala vaccine, but we don't have a medical data to establish the effectiveness of this vaccine. So th- this is in terms of COVID-19. In terms of the overall crisis, as I said, since 2019, the government finally accepted that there was a health crisis in the country. And so they opened up to international NGOs. But there is still some suspiciousness, especially with NGOs that come from abroad. There is still a suspicion that there might be a political agenda or there might be some other agenda. And so some international uh, humanitarian actors have been, and not only international, also national humanitarian actors, have been harassed by the government. So um, it's a very delicate situation, and the way to work is to work with them, keep a very low profile, and just do our job, which is to help to alleviate the health crisis in the country. We don't have any political agenda. I think that's one of the reasons why, we've, until now, we've been uh, allowed to operate in the country. So in all of this, how does Healing Venezuela tackle the humanitarian and specifically the medical crisis in Venezuela? As you can imagine, with difficulty, uh, with lots of difficulties. But we had to reduce the number of programs that we had since COVID-19 crisis. We had several programs that we had to cancel or pause for the time being. And we kept the very fundamental ones that we need to keep, like, for example, distributing medical supplies, We used to collect medical supplies donated from health centers in Europe, and now we can't do that because of COVID. And so we are buying medical supplies in Venezuela. But of course, the amount that we can buy compared to what we used to receive, it's a fraction, really, of what we can distribute now. And the other program that we are continuing, as I say, the junior doctors, because junior doctors are the ones that are basically at the forefront of uh, state hospitals. So they're absolutely vital and we need to keep having them as much as we can. The program that we had to suspend was the mental well-being program that we used to have in health centers, but also in schools, because that's basically needs to be done face to face. And the online version we tried it really didn't work. So that one is suspended. But another program that we have, which is the water treatment plants in hospitals, we build three water treatment plants and we have, during the pandemic, we have maintained the ones that we have. And that's also absolutely vital. And then finally, the children malnourishment prevention program. So it's a food program that we have into a low-income area where children at risk of malnutrition or malnourished have been identified. And so we have adopted, let's say, around uh, 300 children that we uh, provide meals every day. In one of the centers, we provide two meals and a snack Monday to Friday. And in the other center, we provide a large shopping basket of food once a month. And so it's around 300 people that we benefit on a monthly basis. Wow, that is quite impressive for a 
small charity. And also, you are a diasporic organisation, and I imagine that that played a role into how you started and why. Could you give us a bit of an overview on that, please? Yes, I mean, Kilim Venezuela is an organisation mainly by Venezuelans. We have a couple of foreigners on the board, and Irishmen and Englishmen, but the rest of us are Venezuelans. Most of our volunteers also are Venezuelans, and we are all volunteers. So the executive team, the board, it's all volunteer work that we do. Uh, so we started as a diaspora organization or a, a diaspora group around 2014 when the health crisis started to, to be evident in Venezuela. We started collecting medical supplies that discarded but still reusable from health centers here in the UK. And little by little, we expanded the operations. It was not only in the UK, then we shipped supplies from Italy, from Spain, from France. And so we decided to register, formally register in 2016. But then we realized that it wasn't, we needed to attend the emergency. So we need to do something in the shorter term, which was sending as many medical supplies as we could to as many health centers we could, especially in rural areas, the small centers abandoned by the government. But then we thought, well, we would like to think about also the medium and longer term for Venezuela, because this is a crisis that at some point will end. And there will be a health infrastructure there and there will be health professionals will be there. So this is why we started our junior doctors program. When we give the scholarships or the support to these kids, we ask them to stay in the country for at least two years. So to give them back to the country what they have learned. The mental well-being program is also the intent was to give some tools and techniques that will help you in the longer term, I mean, not only in the shorter term, but also for life, especially to health workers and a lot of stress. And then we expanded the program to children, which is the best time for kids to learn how to manage stress. And then the water treatment plants and the overall infrastructure program, again, it has a short-term benefit, but also the medium and longer term, because when you install a water treatment plant that has a lifespan of 10 years, you're really betting to the longer term. This is why we diversified our action and our focus to areas that would cover also the medium and the longer term, instead of just sending medical supplies. That is amazing. Since the local government hasn't really acknowledged the humanitarian crisis going on in the country up until 2019, so then have you had any obstacles while working on the ground? We personally haven't. None of our boxes or shipments were ever detained. We never were harassed on the ground. Sometimes some of our doctors ask us to be, let's say, very low profile on social media, so not to show their faces or their pictures. But this is, you know, there are some peaks of more dangerous times and then things go come again. So we at Healing Venezuela haven't suffered any sort of problems. We didn't have any problems with the government. We know of uh, NGOs, as I said before, that have been harassed. So their shipments have been stopped and confiscated, but that hasn't been our experience. Well, that is quite relieving and, and quite important. And from your work, how do you think or how do you feel that people on the ground value your help and effort to tackle the crisis? Our job is very, it's heartbreaking most of the time. But then we received feedback from, you know, a kid that we could rescue. She was very severely malnourished. Her organs were failing. And after two years in the program, she's now a lovely, chubby little girl. And we had a doctor. Her testimony was very moving because 
She was a junior doctor and she had anemia because she couldn't buy food. And thanks to our support, her indicators, uh, welfare, um, you know, health indicators have improved. Uh, we have testimonies of mothers who go to these hospitals where the kids are hospitalized. And they're grateful because they can get potable water. In that sense, we know that our work is very valued. And, you know, Venezuelans are also very grateful. I mean, our work is, is recognized, which is rewarding, but again, it's it's not that we do it because of that. We wish, we wish we didn't have to do it. We wish we could shut down Healing Venezuela and say, right, we're done. Venezuela doesn't need us anymore. That's our dream, really. But for the time being, I don't think it's going to be something that is realistic, really. Well, yeah, absolutely. I imagine that that is a huge factor. Also, because you're so personally involved being a diasporic organization, it makes all the difference. We wanted to ask you, though, because... The main idea of this podcast is to talk about communities or people or situations that have been misrepresented or not even represented at all. And I remember that the Venezuelan crisis, when it started, it was all over social media, all over the networks, all over the news outlets. And then it just faded away. And now all we know is economic crisis in Venezuela. But what does it actually mean to to have this crisis in a country and what are the implications and now hearing these numbers and the, the, the situations you have to tackle on the ground it's quite it's quite shocking and quite disheartening so what we wanted to ask you is how do you think a media coverage would affect the situation how would it help and do you think a media coverage would actually help Media coverage uh, overall of the Venezuelan crisis has been extremely poor, patchy, erratic, and at the beginning, actually, I would say misrepresenting uh, what was happening in Venezuela. The early warnings of this crisis were there 70 years ago, so the world decided not to look in depth. A few publications like The Economist did raise the flag and were very accurate in the way that they described all the, the pitfalls and all the wrong policies that were being implemented decades ago. But the rest of the world didn't scrap under the surface of what was really going on in Venezuela. So what does that mean for your work? We have seen we can follow our income, our donations. In the moments that there is a peak in the media, of news around Venezuela, our donations go up and then donations go down. So you can see, I mean, it's a, almost a parallel cycle. When there is something happening in Venezuela, the media are talking about it and then we receive donations. Hmm. But, but the thing is that every day there is something happening in Venezuela, but the media exactly. don't pick it because there are other crises, because there are crises that are closer, like Syrian crisis. Uh, so we are not a priority, in, especially in Europe. And uh, America has a very strange attitude towards Venezuela because on one side mm. they want to solve the crisis, but frankly, there are some sanctions, not all sanctions, but there are some sanctions like the petrol sanctions that have been very detrimental to the humanitarian effort Absolutely. because basically there is no petrol to transport medical supplies. And doctors have big difficulties to move around. Some have to go to the hospital in bicycles. So it's not very well understood. It's not very well followed up. The refugee crisis is a, the second largest refugee crisis in the world, only after Syria. And there are 5 million refugees, uh, Venezuelan refugees around the world, mainly in the continent and subcontinent in Latin America. 
But, you know, just to give you an idea of the differences in the profile of the crisis, the Venezuelan crisis, the word gives $2,000 per refugee, per Syrian refugee, which is much very deserved and probably to give you more. But to Venezuelan refugees, the word gives $200. Oh, wow. That is a stark difference. It's 10 times more, right? So to put that in perspective... The same amount that it's given to one Syrian refugee is given to 10 Venezuelans refugee. That is shocking. Most of these refugees are now in the region, so in Colombia, first of all, and then in the rest of Latin America. These are people who walk all the way from Caracas, even the east side of the country, to Peru, you know, by on foot. So in that sense, let's say we really have the short straw. I think that one of the reasons why our charity and many other charities are so active is because Venezuelans are really, we understand what's happening in our country and we understand that we're quite alone. So if there could be a way to make it easier for Venezuelans, at least to be visible, not to to have some sort of help, emotional help. So to make it easier to welcome Venezuelans to the country, I would say 99% of Venezuelans are very, very decent people, uh, very skillful, very resourceful. Some are, some are very well educated. So it would be, would be an asset for the country. I, I think we feel a little bit lonely. That's the truth. We feel that, you know, we're, we're a little bit, we've been abandoned by our country, but also we're not really in the social net of a welcoming country. That's... Very sad to hear as well. So what can our listeners do then to help? There is the obvious thing that is fundraising. You you guys are young and, of course, you're starting your lives and one doesn't expect for you to be big donors or whatever, but every little help. So uh, an event to raise awareness on Venezuela, to raise funds for Venezuela is important. There are some mechanisms now. It's very easy. For example, if you shop in one of these platforms, you can shop and choose charity. But Healing Venezuela has a charity, PayPal, for example. We are registered with PayPal, and you can choose Healing Venezuela as a charity. And basically, you, it doesn't cost you anything to help Healing Venezuela. You can organize sports event challenges and then fundraise for that. So there are many, many ways that you can help. And then, of course, one can always pay a visit to Healing Venezuela's website and social yes, media. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and, and there you have all the all the information you need. Do you actually accept private fundraising as well, uh, like personal contributions in case anybody felt compelled to help? Yeah, no, absolutely, yes. No, you can donate. In fact, we don't have any government donations. So it's all private, really private individuals or companies or uh, foundations. Perfect. All right, Cynthia, thank you so much for speaking with us. We really enjoyed our conversation and we hope things will turn out well for Venezuela. But I deeply believe that since we have people like you in the world, the world is going to be all right and fine. (laughs) (laughs) So we're really glad and grateful for people like you around the world. Thank you so much. And it's not people like I'm on my way out. It's people like you (laughs) that will make this world a better place. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you. So our lovely listeners, this was our conversation with Cinzia from Healing Venezuela. And for anyone who wants to help or can help, you can 
donate via via PayPal, just like Cynthia said, or individual funding. And we will, of course, put all the links that you can use on our website. You can check that out. Or even what's more important and what doesn't cost you any effort or money mm. is to just keep talking about it. Yeah, this is what we're here. Just go on the on the social media, share the post, share the information they put out share their efforts it really takes a fraction of your time it can really make a difference to bring the situation the discussion on the public table because that's really what matters is that people start acknowledging what's going on and that it becomes part of the public discussion please stay tuned for the next episode which is going to be about the kafala system and the migrant workers in lebanon thank you so much for listening and the most important thing don't forget about venezuela Thank you for listening to The Maastricht Diplomat. This episode was produced by Gloria and Sherelle. The editor was Brendan. The music on this episode is by Stone Ocean. This podcast is brought to you by the students of UNU Merit, the United Nations University here in Maastricht. If you liked the episode, please share it and tell us what you think on our Instagram. Links and organizations mentioned are in the description of this episode. Thank you again for listening and hoi hoi.